Welcome to Maximal Being, a podcast devoted to ditching fad diets and using real science to get you healthy and feeling great. I'm Doc Mock, a GI and functional medicine doctor who harnesses the power of gut health to get you achieving your goals. And I'm Jackie P, a well-informed layman who challenges the experts and asks the questions that you want. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button or leave a comment. And now, on to the show. What's going on, Maximal Beings? Doc Mock here with Jackie P. And joining us today is Dr. Douglas Beach, who is a uh, medical oncologist uh, and a, a dear friend of mine. Um, we're going to be unpacking that dreaded C word that people toss around the workplace. I am not talking about what you think, but the word cancer. It is a humongous topic, and our worlds revolve around this. It remains a leading cause of death here in America, and it certainly is if not the worst information somebody will ever hear in their life, but one of the worst things that you'll hear. And so we're going to talk about some of the things that you can do to prevent cancer from happening, what cancer is, and then we'll also get into the weeds about things that you can do that are a little more biohacky on how to you know, improve your risk, or if you do have cancer, how to adjunct your chemotherapy. So I'm Doc Mock. I'm a therapeutic endoscopist, a functional medicine practitioner here in Cleveland, Ohio. And joining me is my co-host, Jackie P. Hello, Maximal Beans. It is your favorite layman, Jackie P. I have an extensive medical background. I've watched every episode of The Magic School Bus. So <laughs> I'm, I think it's safe to say I know as much as both of these gentlemen here. So happy to be here. Happy to talk with you all and also excited to speak with you uh dr doug i'm not too sure we didn't cover how to how do you like to be addressed but it's uh, fine yeah that, that doug works. dr doug um nice to have you um take it away thank you well thanks for having me it's just fun to be here so i guess i'll tell you a little bit about me first uh so uh south jersey born and raised almost at south, west philadelphia i guess too much of a fresh prince of bel-air references there <laughs> um so i basically did my training in new jersey went to undergraduate school at, at rucker's uh, I went to Robert Johnson Medical School, uh, which is now Rutgers Medical School. I did my residency and fellowship in New Jersey, where I met the uh, the star, my star resident here, Doc Mock, uh, back in the day. And then uh, outside of fellowship, my first job outside of training was at Pennsylvania Hospital, where I'm currently practicing, uh, part of the University of Pennsylvania Health System. Uh, I'm I'm a generalist as far as hematology, oncology. Uh, so I see patients with all types of blood disorders and all types of cancers. My special areas of interest are chronic lymphocytic leukemia, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and I also oversee the genetic testing that's done in my hospital. So I see a lot of breast cancer as well. Uh, and I've always sort of made it a special interest of mine to really talk to my patients about nutrition and diet, as well as lifestyle interventions. And my thoughts have changed over the years and how I talk to patients. And I'm sure we'll probably get into that a little bit. Yeah, thanks so much for being here, uh, Doug. You know, I and I really appreciate you not yelling at me too much when we were rounding the hospital. He definitely made me do a few push-ups, you know, but it's all just part of the training process. No, you Jackie, were sorry. Jackie, are you sure you didn't go to medical school with the whole magic school bus thing? I mean, it's basically the same thing. I'm so. pretty sure it's the same thing. Okay, yeah, yeah. The science holds up still. I'd say. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it is not bro science by any means. Yeah. Paleo, keto, vegan, and carnivore. Maybe you've tried them all, but did you have success? Are you still doing that diet? Turns out there's not just one diet right for one particular person. By understanding how your body works and the relationship behind your body's workings and these diets, you can then approach the perfect plan for you. In the Perfect Human Diet course, we talk you about your body's inner workings and the pros and cons of each plan. We discuss how our ancestors ate and have eaten and lay a framework to tailoring a plan that is perfect for you. To learn more about the Perfect Human Diet course, head to MaximalBeing.com courses to find out more. And as always, I'm Doc Mock, and I'm here to maximize your health. You cannot supplement your way to health. But there are things that we need to add to our lives that can maximize our pathway to wellness. The American diet is virtually devoid of omega-3 fatty acids, which play a major role in cardiovascular disease, gut permeability, and mental health. Personally, I take omega-3s every night and I herb 
is the best place for clean, natural sources of supplements. I love the ZenWise Omega-3 Fatty Acid Supplement, which is free of fish burps and good for the environment. Head on over to MaximalBeing.com slash iHerb, that's I-H-E-R-B, and enter the code B as in boy, D as in dog, B as in boy, 5528, and receive 10% off your orders for all supplements. Maximize your supplements with iHerb. So, you know, our worlds intersect with cancer all the time. You know, a lot of what I do is diagnosing some of the bad GI cancers. Um, And I think the most common question that people ask me is, what is cancer and how did I get it? So humongous question, but try your best. No, that's yeah, that's a great one. No, so it's it's pretty much the most common thing I get asked with a new diagnosis. And the way I sort of break it down simply is that, you know, a cancer cell is one a cell in your body that was once normal that got mutated in a certain part of the genes and the DNA. Now we have cells, we have certain genes that control cell growth or proliferation. Uh, we call oncogenes. They're kind of like the accelerator of the cell, the gas pedal. We also have certain genes that are called tumor suppressor genes, which are kind of like the break of the cell. And if those sort of things get mutated, that's really one bad step in forming cancer. We're probably forming cancers a little bit every day, which can kind of be terrifying, but in a way it's actually uh, probably not because we realize how good our bodies are at looking out for these things. So we have certain repair mechanisms to fix ourselves when damages do happen from just life, from aging, from inflammation, from infections. Uh, And these damages can be repaired by our cells. Some cells realize when these things are happening, if they cannot be repaired and they they activate these tumor suppressor genes, the breaks to kind of shut the cell down and the cell kind of commits suicide. Um, but sometimes these fail safes, you know, go, go awry uh, and, and cancers can form. Now we also have the immune system, which of course is very important in surveilling our bodies for these cancer cells developing. Uh, we have natural killer cells that can come out and hunt for these cells that are different and, 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 and basically destroy them before they become cancerous. So it is a process and uh, one that's inevitable. I think the older we get, the, the older, uh, the, the more likely we are to form these cancers uh, and as our other colleagues in GI and cardiology to keep patients alive longer and healthier, it's going to be, become a problem still. Um, so it's, it's, we're definitely not going to run out of business. That's for sure. Yeah. I think, I think that was a really good way of putting it. I mean, you know, I always tell people that you have these little factory workers in your colon because usually we're talking about GI cancers every three days, your entire GI lining sloughs off. And then these factory workers every three days of your entire life have to build a whole new lining. That's a hard job. Eventually one of those factory workers is going to get disgruntled and start making the wrong stuff, (laughs) you know? So it's just a matter of time. Yeah. Um, I like that analogy. Yeah. I mean, just to dive right in as far as one of the modalities that we, we talk about a lot and that's intermittent fasting. And I think about it, giving those factory workers a day off. So um, Jackie P, I know you have some experience going through the, intermittent fasting process. I, I, both of us do it every single day. Why don't you share with us, you know, some of your sentiments about the fasting process? Oh, I am so pro intermittent fasting. Um, now I would say I did have a leg up on usual folks. I am, I, I have, I'm one of the rare people you will find that does not like breakfast or eggs. I mean, I cannot stand them, the sell side of them or <laughs> the smell of them. Um, so as you could say it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's a whole thing. Um, but when I, I, I learned from Doc about the, the benefits of intermittent fasting, I mean, it's it seemed to solve two problems at the same time. Um, and I would say for me personally, you know, I, it, it, it was a transition, right? I wasn't just waking up the next day and skipping breakfast. Um, but I, I felt like from a just a functional standpoint, clarity. Um, it really worked for me. Um, right. It, we're all a fingerprint and we all have our own makeup and, you know, people may respond differently, but I mean, once I got used to just having a, a put a dash of milk in my morning coffee and I can still work out. Mm-hmm. And then at, at just around 12 o'clock, it's like my stomach knows I go from, it's like, Oh, it's time to eat. And I mean, it is, I mean, I would say probably one of the big, the first stepping stones that really changed how I feel just on a 
general everyday basis. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I know what else I know. I, I, I could talk about it all day. Um, but yeah, if, if you haven't tried it, I would I would recommend it. Um, and it's not for everyone, but for me, it definitely worked and also made eating simpler for me. I only had to worry about two meals and one snack. Um, and I'm, I'm a simplest, so I like, I like things simple. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I'm actually a real big believer in, in fasting. Also, I think it is one of the most powerful tools we can do for health. And I'd say, I, I think the sort of you know, fitness community has been ahead of the medical community with this for a while. Now, of course, for centuries, many cultures have been doing fasting and sort of, I guess, by trial and error, a lot of religious practices, they sort of understood that there were some health benefits to fasting. But it wasn't really until I would say the last three years or so that I really started incorporating in my practice. Uh, so in the beginning, um, like a lot of doctors, probably I had some frustration talking to patients about sort of healthy diets and what they can do to change. And inevitably, I'd see the same thing, but most people would do a diet and, you know, like any diet really works for a short time. And uh, the retention rate of most diets is probably like 1% after like six months. Uh, so that really wasn't working long term. And it's hard to get people in the habit of changing their sort of lifestyle, what they've been doing for, you know, decades and decades. Um, but how I break it down usually is um, I talk about how any diet you pull off the shelf or, or talk about the new fat diets or whatever it is, falls into three categories. So dietary restriction, what you eat, time restriction, when you eat, or caloric restriction, how much you eat. And I think all three of those are probably important. And it may be important to do a little bit of each on certain times. But I think, you know, when I focus on time restriction with the patients, you also do account for caloric restriction as well, because you end up eating less. Um, you don't tend to overeat on the other meals. But of course, intermittent fasting nowadays is such a broad term. There's a lot of different ways to do it. There's a really good new uh, article, I'm sure you guys have probably read, in the New England Journal of Medicine in, in December of 2019, looking at all the benefits of intermittent fasting. They kind of lumped them all together. You know, there's certainly like the five and two plan where you can sort of fast two days and, and eat ad lib the other five days. And there's the alternate day plan, which of course, probably a little bit cumbersome, but certainly has its merits. I tend to do kind of what you were saying, Jackie, is that I, I sort of recommend more of the time-restricted diet. Uh, so it's more like the daily fast. Um, because I think any one of our patients has at some point fasted at least for 12 hours for, for lab work. And they know that they can do that. No problem. Cause getting through the mental part of, is it, is it doable is, is really the hardest hurdle I think in the beginning. Um, but after they realize that, yeah, I can fast for 12 hours. Um, they realize that you can start adding time to that. And I don't think we know yet as doctors, um, with what the right prescription is for the right person. As you said, there's no one size fits all diet for anybody. Although I say that for intermittent fasting, I'd say it's probably one size fits most because you can really alter it a lot as far as how you do the eating window. And uh, as long as you're hydrating, uh, I think it's easy to, to do on the off hours. And of course, if you really interrupt the, the window based on the, the sleep schedule, it's not that hard because unless you're sleepwalking to the kitchen, you're not going to be eating while you're asleep. So uh, it is fairly easy to someone to say somebody, let's do a 16 hour fast where you're stopping eating at 8 p.m. and then your next meal is until 12 noon. It's it's not too hard to do. And once patients are able to do that, they find that they can actually even push a little bit further on some days. And, and I think that gets gives them control about it. I like what you said about the uh, sort of regulation, because I, I agree that sometimes it's better to say all or none. Uh, I always joke that, you know, if a patient's uh, like bring us a lot of treats sometimes and we always have like donuts and and uh, cakes in our in our office and you see our office workers trying to be good and say, you know what, I'm, I'm only going to have just a little sliver. They come take a little sliver. Later on, they come back, take another sliver. By the end of the day, <laughs> they have the full piece, um, but they feel better about it versus saying like, I, just, I can't eat right now. It's not my eating window. And I just think that makes it a little easier. Um, but in, in addition to all those things, I really, really talk about how these things are a helpful hack, but I really also like the autophagy aspect of, of intermittent fasting and why it's important for things like cancer and other chronic diseases, if I could get into that for a moment. If I, am I not rambling too much? No, uh, we, we want to hear all about autophagy. Yeah, so- I will, so, I will so pause this, you. What's that? Please tell us what autophagy- Yeah, is. yeah, so autophagy literally means self-eating. And if you look at these, these cells in your body with like an electron microscopy, you can really see these little bubbles that are sort of taking up a lot of parts of the cell. So the way I kind of oversimplified is, you know, once you're doing longer than a 12 hour fast, I think most studies show that within 12 hours, not much autophagy happens, but if you push that past 12 hours um, and we don't know what the maximum is, certainly 
after about seven days, you're really maximally hitting autophagy. Probably it's, it's a few days that really it, it takes to really maximize how much autophagy you get. But that word means self-eating. So after you burn off your blood sugar for fuel, you can start tapping into your fat stores for energy. But you also start breaking down damaged proteins inside cells. And that's really what we're getting to when we're talking about in the beginning, what causes cancer. It's the damages inside the cells. And these damaged cells are going to persist and are more likely to propagate and become cancers. So it stands to reason that breaking down some of these damaged parts of cells, basically recycling the, the, the bad cells, kind of like survival of the fittest, makes sense and why it would help. And it's not surprising that we see some of these studies now coming out that shows that a lot of these chronic diseases that are all linked, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, you know, all kinds of metabolic syndrome, even things like inflammatory disorders and dementia, all related to our diets. Um, and much is why we see them in such high percentages here in this, this part of the world, um, our sort of westernized culture, uh, it's all, all linked. And this is a way we can really sort of maximize that aspect of, of, uh, of health. Yeah, I think the data specifically in cancer is evolving. I, I think that there's yeah. enough data in the lab in terms of cancer to show benefit of autophagy. And like you mentioned, it's kind of seven days is, is right at where it peaks and then it kind of plateaus after that seven day time period. But um, it's hard to do these studies in human beings, right? Because yeah. somebody has cancer, a lot of the times they have difficulty with eating, especially like in my world. And so mm -hmm. getting an IRB to approve a study where you may be restricting some of their intake is really a difficult thing to do. We actually are doing some research in the pancreas realm with intermittent fasting. So stay tuned for that. Oh, that's interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, of course, cancer is very complicated. So we know that it probably does matter whether or not we're doing this for prevention, which I think is, is a major, uh, major possible breakthrough for, for prevention uh, versus active cancers, because all cancers are different. There is some data since I am one of the, my specialties is CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which is a cancer of the blood. Um, there are certain, there's some data that fasting protocols, um, that have been done have actually lowered certain enzymes and, and things inside cells. For example, there's something called Bruton's tyrosine kinase. There's something called PI3 kinase, and these happen to be druggable targets. You know, one of the most effective drugs for uh, CLL is, is a drug that affects Bruton's tyrosine kinase called a Brutinib. Uh, and, and similarly, there's drugs that affect PI3 kinase. And so because we know that fasting sort of suppresses those things, it makes sense that perhaps it could be useful in treatment. Of course, this is conjecture. We don't really have the data yet to show that, um, but it does make sense that there could be some treatment, you know, um, you know, uses for these, these type of things that wouldn't involve side effects of a drug. Um, but of course, then there's other cancers that to make it more difficult and complicated, of course, that actually may use autophagy to their advantage. Um, certain cancers, of the lung, for example, that are mutated in certain genes called like KRAS or BRAF, they may actually use autophagy for their own benefits. Those cancer cells may survive longer with autophagy. So, you know, people with active cancer that are losing weight, probably not a good thing um, to, to really recommend, but I, I definitely agree that needs to be a lot more research on this. And you're exactly right. A lot of the barriers are just trying to convince, you know, things like the IRB that says we could do these studies safely and we should do these things. Yeah. And it, it certainly, I mean, you would think that when I was going through the IRB process that I was going to, I was feeding babies to people or something. <laughs> right. It was, How could you do it that? was an intense process, but, yeah, I believe but we actually just started enrolling and people from all around the world are pretty excited about it. So stay tuned. Um, Definitely. Jackie P, you know, I think one of the things that my patients ask me is what are some of the healthiest things that you can do to prevent cancer? I mean, what are your thoughts on day-to-day -day things that people can do to, to prevent cancer or not get cancer? I mean, what, what are some easy things? Well, some easy things are increasing your, your daily activity. Um, there, there's some, you know, there are a lot of studies that show that just like increasing your activity, even moderately can actually give you a lot of, you know, great benefits in reducing those. Uh, I believe, uh, the words like a marker, right? Like your, your risk markers of, of increasing uh, cancer. Also, um, I mean, don't want to sound like a, uh, uh, like a broken record, but eating well, <laughs> um, you know, staying away from processed foods and, 
um, you know, high salt, high fat, high calorie foods, right? The further your food looks like uh, when it came out of the ground, probably the worse it is for you. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things that folks can do, um, even if it's just a little by little that can reduce, greatly reduce uh, your risk. Uh, another thing, right? Um, olive oil, right? Um, not, excuse me, not olive oil, but, uh, you know, like healthier diet that's like high in good fats, right? We all know where I'm going with this, right? The <laughs> OMG, Omega-3, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, right. We, we just found out from Dr. Doug, right, that, right, your, your, your cancer cells will basically, we're fighting cancer all the time, essentially, right? I mean, I don't want to oversell it, right? But essentially, it pops up and your, and your body puts it out, right? So if you're giving your body junk, it's working with junk. So same thing, right? If you have, a, if your house is on fire and, and you give your, the fireman a, a garden hose, guess what? He's not going to have a good, a chance. So making your body healthy, making your body a good system, a good environment overall helps contribute to a, I guess, a, a, a less likelihood of producing cancer cells and cancer, you know, um, issues. Now I do have a question though. Speaking of, because you said something, Dr. Doug, I don't want to forget it. Yeah. Because you're, you're talking about the different types of cancer, right? So there's, you know, we can essentially have cancer everywhere. Now this may, I don't know how to frame this question, right? But like, is it the same cancer everywhere? Right? Like if I have cancer in my pancreas, right? And, you know, and men can have breast cancer, by the way, that's a, you know, Correct. Yeah. Um, you're right right? Like, is that the same cancer is just in a different place? Or is it, you know, is, is there like a diff, something different molecularly? Um, is, I'm not sure if that question. That's a great, no, I know exactly where you're going with that question. And it's actually, it's a great question. And it's probably one of the main reasons why we have not been able to cure cancer in the broad sense of the, the word, because cancer means so many different things. Uh, one person's lung cancer is different than another type of lung cancer, not to mention their different cell types. Uh, not only that, but even when you have a primary cancer that does metastasize, there's clear evidence that sometimes those metastases can actually change and different clones of these cells are actually evolving at different rates, which sometimes you know, shows up in treatment where you may see responses you know, to therapies like chemotherapy in some areas and other cancers or other areas are actually progressing because biologically those cells are changing. And all cancers do evolve, unfortunately. So even if you start off with a slow-growing, fairly indolent cancer, it can transform into a more aggressive cancer as that cancer cell acquires new mutations. So it's very complex, and uh, it's one of the major challenges we face, which is why that we put all this you know, money and effort into finding you know, better drugs and better combinations. We're missing a lot of the, the opportunity is to control, it's to try to prevent these diseases in the first place. Um, and we look at longevity, um, any, anybody who has a disease, no matter how healthy they were to, to, to begin with, their longevity is shortened. Whereas most of the, the issues getting someone to a longer life, to a healthier life, involves preventing the onset of disease to begin with, not, not extending their life once they have the disease. Um, so that's really one of the major blind spots in, in the way we sort of approaching cancer. But, but it's a really great question. Yeah, that, that is a really great question. Um, you, you had another one looked like. Jack. I have a lot of questions, actually. Yeah, I, got, <laughs> I, could, I, could, I could just fire off all day. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's, let's say someone, uh, like there was a, like a small cancerous tumor removed, let's mm -hmm. say from, I don't know, let's, let's an, an appendix, right? Mm -hmm. um, to like, is, is that person like, considered like an active are they remediate or you know or is it uh like you know I, my question is like if you've had cancer once do you almost like are always like high risk and you have to stay on top of it you know what what does that look like yeah so i would so let's break that down a little bit more that's another great question so you know it's once once thought that if you find cancer early enough then then it's, it's certainly obviously more likely to be cured but really cancer is more of a systemic disease. Um, and so that's why we, even with women who have a small breast cancer, we don't usually stop with just surgery by itself because my favorite analogy is that cancer is the weed and your body is the lawn. 
Now, the three main modalities of treatment we think about in general is surgery, radiation, and medications. Now, I'm a medical oncologist, so I, I obviously deal with more with medications. But if you have a local disease, you still want to pull up that weed. Sometimes you want to sort of fire some energy at that sort of flower bed to make sure those roots don't come back locally. But that's not all we usually do, especially if it's like, a, for example, a hormone-sensitive cancer. We give them hormone therapies, not because we're preventing the cancer from coming back necessarily, it shouldn't come back, but we're preventing new cancers from forming also. We're sort of changing the health of the soil. We're changing the environment that exists in the first place that allowed the cancer to happen. Now, sometimes cancers just happen. Unfortunately, it could be sporadic and could be bad luck. But most cancers, at least a large percentage of even I would say the majority, could be preventable based on lifestyle. Uh, and that's sort of the common denominator here with all of our nutrition recommendations, whether it be from the, you know, the American Heart Association or the American Cancer Society, a lot of them really focus in on how do we limit metabolic syndrome and systemic inflammation, because inflammation is the major common theme here. It's why people with uh, liver disease or hepatitis get liver cancer. It's why people with inflammatory bowel disease get colon cancer. Con you know, persistent inflammation in a specific area puts more stress on the system and more likely to have these mutations we talked about in the beginning. Um, so it is, it is more of a, of, a, of a whole body problem than just a local problem. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cause I, I was always, you know, I was wondered, you know, like if, if someone had, you know, a, 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 a lump or a tumor was removed, um, you know, I guess they'd, they'd, they'd be, I guess a little bit more proactive, right. They'd see someone like yourself perhaps every year or so just to check, but let's, you know, let's, let's, I guess, step back a little bit and, and think, okay, are there really, I guess, symptoms, right? You know, like, you know, if you go on the internet and you Google any symptom, you're basically going to get the worst case scenario because that's the internet. But like, if, is, is there something like, is there something that people should be looking for, um, you know, to make sure that, okay, like they're, you know, cancer free or they might be at risk. Well, the most important thing is the age-appropriate cancer screening that we recommend. Um, and a lot of that can be guided more on family history. Um, so regardless of knowing your genetics, um, it is important to know sort of your family history as much as possible. Unfortunately, that's not always possible. Some families don't, didn't talk about their, their illnesses, especially the older generations, or some families have limited information on one side of the family. Um, but certainly we recommend, you know, your, your colonoscopies you know, for women for mammograms, um, all those sort of age-appropriate uh, screening. But as far as symptoms, you know, it can be tri tricky because it, some, some symptoms are, are very vague. Um, certainly, we're more concerned about a patient who's rapidly losing weight, um, especially in, in our society where most people are a little bit overweight and things like COVID pandemic where everyone's gained weight. Uh, if someone's actually not really trying but, but losing a significant amount of weight, we're talking about usually, you know, 20 pounds or more in, within three months. That's very concerning. Uh, certainly persistent pains that could be, um, you know, going on more than, than four to six weeks in a, in a patient who's, who's older, uh, very unlikely still in young folks, but you still gotta, you know, go to your doctor and, and, and find out any persistent symptoms. You know, we don't want people thinking if they have a lymph node that's elevated, that they won't have to run to their doctor because they feel it. I mean, that's normal. Um, but anything that persists longer than, than, than four weeks, it, it may be worth checking out with at least your primary doctor first. I actually had a patient that uh, COVID diagnosed his cancer. And what, what I mean by that is that he was a physician. He was wearing his mask. Mm -hmm. He put his mask on his ear. And when he did that, he felt in like a humongous lymph node and he ended up having a head and neck cancer. Pretty crazy, wow. right? So, so COVID actually did lead <laughs> to some, you know, pertinent and good things for some people. And he's doing really well um, as a side note. Um, so you mentioned the grass analogy. How can I make sure that I have Bermuda grass and not crabgrass <laughs> on my lawn? <laughs> love, love the analogy. So yeah. um, I would say this, this goes back to one of the things I wanted to touch upon, which is part of this answer is what Jackie said earlier about, you know, constant exercise, you know, a, a body in motion stays in motion. One of my favorite uh, studies, it came out probably like three or four years by, by now, I think it was, but it was a breast cancer study although it has applications to every, every person, it basically looked at two different groups of activity. It had people who were just walkers and then it had really high intense exercisers. And the reason I like this study, uh, especially for my lazier patients, 
uh, <laughs> is that the walkers got just as much cancer benefit. Um, so they define the walkers as moderate uh, walking. Moderate intensity was they were walking fast enough what they could talk but not sing. Now, not a lot of singing walkers out there, but that was how they defined it. Uh, and the sort of line in the sand they drew was if you could, if you had at least three hours a week of moderate walking or the equivalent, you had 30% less breast cancer, they had stronger bone density, and they had less fatigue. If I had a pill that did that, it would be the best selling pill in the market, you know, hands down. Um, so that is huge. And unfortunately, a lot of us don't do that, including myself sometimes. I, I need to be better. Uh, I'm so sure we all could be better. Uh, so that tells you that at least walking and doing some kind of regular activity, you know, 30 minutes a day or three hours a week in separate chunks uh, is very, very reasonable and has, does wonders for the body. And of course, diet. So keeping that, that grass, that Bermuda grass, uh, <laughs> it would really involve, you know, what Jackie said also it really kind of hit the nail on the head as far as less processed foods. So what does processed foods mean? Why is it less processed foods? Well, processed foods have added sugar. They have added preservatives. Um, they did some, some interesting studies looking at like third world countries. And even in, in this part of the world, you know, long ago, we see a shift in, in different cancers that we see. Uh, prior to refrigeration, we saw a lot more gastric cancers because of preservatives. We still see a lot of gastric cancers in, in Asian countries. Um, we saw a lot more uh, cancers related to infectious diseases, which are very uncommon nowadays. But as the study looked at this third world population, and as they became richer, and basically they started developing more cancers that we see in our part of the world, which is basically lifestyle cancers, where they're becoming less active, they're eating more processed foods, they're eating more meat because they can afford it, um, but probably eating a lot more sugar too. So it's we love to pick on meat, but it was probably really a combination of all of those factors. Uh, and they start developing more cancers that we see, uh, which is you know breast, colon, prostate, sort of you know all of the above, really. Uh, so it, it, that definitely matters. Jackie P, can I can I get a little nerdy here for a second? And feel free to just pull the layman card anytime. <laughs> I, I have it ready. I have it ready. All right. All right. So, uh, I mean, what we, we always talk about sugar bad, right? But like, molecularly, sugar is just sucrose, right? It's just very harmless, sitting sitting there, not minding its own business. But why is it bad, right? So. All these sugary processed foods generate something called ages, A-G-E, and those are advanced glycolytic end products. Those ages wiggle their way into your cell and they bind to this kind of molecular mechanism, which intermittent fasting downregulates, by the way, um, called your NF-kappa beta system, right? And this is kind of the brainchild for what triggers inflammation in our bodies, right? So it, it just activates NF-kappa beta, and then all of a sudden you have a forest fire all throughout your body. And that's why processed food sugar is bad because it, it generates these ages. Also, as a side note, if you take good food and you microwave it for way too long, you generate ages, in particular meats. So, you know, just make sure that you're prepping your food in, in good ways. Now, if you're just nuking it for a little bit, you're okay. But if you're really, really nuking it to the point where it's popping all over the place, you may have some ages on that meat. Can I, can I nerd up even more on, on, on a little segue on that? Uh, again, pull, pull right. in your car, Jackie. You're, you're actually more saying, than that, though. You understand this stuff a lot better than, than you well, have. I'm, I'm a double agent, but you guys are pushing it here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just There's saying. no flags on the field yet, though. Yeah, so. yeah that's right. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm, I think it also depends on how you get the sugar in. And uh, one of the big things that I rail against with my patients is sugary beverages. So there was another really interesting study. Uh, it was done on mice, um, but it was looking at giving the mouse actual fruit versus giving them fructose like juice, like fruit juice. And it was interesting that the mice who had the fruit did okay. The mice who had the juice were a lot fatter. They had 50% more colon polyps and colon cancer. And if they measured their blood levels, the ones who ate the fruit had a very low rise in insulin versus the ones who had the really high concentration of juice hitting the GI tract had a big spike in insulin which of course would lead to insulin growth factor, which again, this is what I care about in the cancer realm. Um, so it probably also depends on how you do it. And a lot of our patients are well-intentioned and they say, okay, I want to be better. I want to start getting my fruits and vegetables, which is great. But getting that in a form of uh, smoothies, which is mostly fruit sugar, is probably not a good way to do it. And certainly can add to metabolic syndrome uh, and obesity. 
and so if you're going to have the fruit, which is good, get the vitamins, but eat the whole fruit and not, uh, not juice it and stay away from any kind of other sodas and, and sugary beverages, because I think that does matter. That, that, uh, actually, that was okay. You guys, I mean, you guys, you guys have walked the line, but I, I, I think it was okay. I might, you know, I, I might get in trouble later when, you know, some folks tell me, Hey, you, you probably missed a card, but, um, <laughs> I think that's that's a good point, uh, Doctor Doug. Right when when you said, you know, you have these smoothies, right? There's a there's a lot of places and brands out there that say, hey, this is a smoothie. It's got fruits in it and it's great for you. And then you turn and you look at the cover, and uh, it says 25 grams of added sugar, right? Like, so this isn't sugar that's naturally occurring in that strawberry or in that banana. It's like no, there was it was sweet, and then they put in some sort of high fructose corn syrup or whatever that's processed, which then again, your body trying to fight that fire only has a hose is going to create damage. But I would like to talk a little bit more about food and its impact on, on, you know, the, you know, trying to, you know, be, have a low cancer environment in our bodies. Right. So um, let's, you know, let's talk about, um, Let's, let's start with coffee, right? I, I remember once upon a time, like, oh, coffee is bad for you. You know, it's it can cause cancer, or everything, right? So, um, you know, what 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 is the 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 thought right now on coffee, right? Like, is is, is drinking too much bad? Is it reduce cancer, or is it kind of a neutral player? Yeah, so uh, I think to some respect, coffee has kind of been exonerated. Uh, in some recent studies, um, it, it, it's not, there's no evidence that it is bad or cancer causing. There may be even some, some ideas that there could be some antioxidants in the beans that may actually be protective. Um, the problem with nutrition studies in general, which we kind of alluded to a little bit before, is that they're very difficult to do. Um, you know, mm -hmm. it's not like our gold standard trials where we're studying a drug and we can give, you know, a controlled trial with a placebo versus, you know, randomized controlled trial. We can't get, you know, 20,000 people in a biodome and give some people this exact diet and this other diets and control every aspect of their lives and then follow them longitudinally over 20 years and see what happens. You know, you know, it'd be nice if we could do that. But so a lot of things uh, in, in nutrition science are sort of looking at observational studies, trying to find connections, and sometimes they're just wrong, which is frustrating to us and the general public. I mean, how many times, as you said, it's you turn on the news and say, oh, chocolate's good for you. Oh, chocolate's bad. Eggs are good. Oh, eggs are bad. You know, like, so it's, <laughs> It's their kind of reductionist approach, which is unfortunate. And I think that same thing applies to other sort of vitamins and things like that. We, we try to take this, uh, you know, shortcut, I think, in this part of the world, in this country. I always joke that Americans have the most expensive urine on the planet because we, we take a, we try to supplement our way to health. And then we just probably pee it out, all the, all the vitamins we're taking in. Whereas if you're getting those vitamins in the fruit or vegetable that were intended by nature, you're going to actually absorb it better. It's going to work better. And uh, my favorite example of this, um, which I think we were going to touch on, was is beta carotene. So we know that a lot of people who have a lot of populations who have a lot of uh, vegetables in their diet uh, have lower cancer risks. So if you took the reductionist approach, you could say, well, maybe beta carotene is the responsible additive. So let's just isolate that and give it in high doses to patients and, and, you know, help their cancers. And we actually saw not only they did not work in some studies, but in a few studies, it actually looks like it made it worse. Um, really unclear why that was, but some patients with lung cancer, especially those with prior asbestos exposures really had worse outcomes of beta carotene. And again, it's probably nothing wrong with beta carotene. It's just that, is it the beta carotene by itself? Is it the other nutrients, the other phytonutrients that, that are working alongside it, you know, kind of synergistically? To make it work better, is it the delivery mechanism? You know, taking a pill versus taking eating the vegetable and 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 having the way nature intended. So uh, that's a big problem, and we try to oversimplify things, which we do all the time. I also would say, you know, does a pill have additives in it that are in fact doing more damage than the right. substance that you're trying to deliver in that ad? Which is why it's important to note who is making the pill that you're about to take. You know, not just the pill that you're going to take. Yes, absolutely. That's good. I have a lot more questions about food stuff. Keep going. All right. I remember always growing up, I was almost petrified at the little blue and pink packets. You go to the diner for your coffee, the sweetener. 
even to this day, I'm like, yeah, those cause cancer. Don't touch them. Like I'm afraid of all, I mean, even now, like, you know, I don't do sweeteners, but I remember anything was like an artificial sweetener. Mm-hmm. I was like, ugh. I, I, I saw that episode 2020 <laughs> that causes cancer. And I'm not the one. Is that true? Is it not true? Is it certain things or is it, you know, take it away? Yeah. Great, great question. Also, I think uh, I, I have my own biases uh, with the artificial sweeteners, but as it turns out, aspartame, for example, is one of the most well-studied uh, food additives uh, in history by the FDA um, and even though some of these things like saccharin have been shown to cause cancer in laboratory animals, which it always says a little disclaimer on the little can of Shasta mm-hmm. soda, whatever it was back in the day, um, <laughs> these were at super uh, high levels that would never be seen, you know, in, in people. Um, that being said, um, so I don't really think there's any good evidence that, that it does cause cancer risks. I have much more concerns, which I'm sure Doc Ma could speak more eloquently than I could about, that it probably does affect your microbiome, but not, I, I don't have any concern about cancer per se, but I still don't necessarily know that they're good for your health. Yeah. Most of the studies where they're looking at these additives, they feed rats the equivalent of Jackie. Remember that episode of the Simpsons where Homer has the sugar pile? Yes. It's like, it's yes. like that Wait, amount sugar. of saccharin that, that these four rats are eating every single day. So oh, that gives me cancer just thinking about it. Yeah. So I can, I can yeah, imagine right. that that's not good for them. Exactly. But yeah, there is there is evolving literature that actually these newer uh, deemed to be good artificial sweeteners or even some of the more natural ones like monk fruit and stevia do alter your microbiome. Mm -hmm. And there is a link between microbiome and cancer. But I think that, you know, we're still trying to figure out these trillions and trillions of bacteria and how each of them interact with our cancer risk. But yeah, I think that's the next frontier is really getting honing in the microbiome better because we still need to understand it more than we do. Yeah. Also doing some microbiome pancreatic cancer research. On everything. Stay tuned. (laughs) Listen, I don't know how he does it. He's doing research. He's in the lab. He's working on his calf muscles. (laughs) Staying clean. He's making kombucha. I don't know. He needs a cape. All right. This, This is the last one for foods, I promise. GMOs, the organic right? Like, you know, they show pictures of, well, this was a tomato in 1950. And it's like this tiny thing. And like, oh, there's a tomato now. And it's like the size of a basketball, right? I mean, visually like, oh, wow, why are they putting in that thing? Like, is is there a real connection? Or is that just the internet doing its thing? Well, it's probably, it's definitely the internet doing its thing. Although (laughs) I think we don't know really the answer to that. I mean, I think there's something to be said for, you know, if we could, if, if they're devising crops, that are more resistant to, to, uh, to bacteria and, and pests without having to use the same level of pesticides. Well, that may be a plus, but we really don't know the answer to this question. Um, you know, I don't, there's no evidence that they're bad, that they can cause disease, but that's not the same thing as knowing that they're safe. Um, so I do think it's definitely a more of a you know, widespread panic, um, but I will agree that it is important to know we should be aware of what we're eating is GMO versus not. Um, I think it's, I think that should be really transparent. Um, but I don't think to date, I'm not aware of anything that says that we definitely can prove that it's bad for you. Yeah. I think it's um, surprising what little GMO or non GMO really means, you know, uh, and, and there are good, good sides to GMO. I read a book last year called the fate of food, which is a really great read. But they give an example about how GMOs kind of saved a, a lot of people in a particular area of Africa where their crops were getting destroyed by these ants. These army ants were just destroying their crops and they modified the corn. And so now people in this area can eat. Other than that, people were dying of starvation. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, so GMO, not always bad. But, but on another end of things, you know, the, we do odd things to food, right? So, you know, during the time of, uh, a bombs when we were testing those, one of the things we did is a bomb grapefruit. And that led to the creation of the ruby red grapefruit that everybody eats in the store. That is not a naturally occurring thing that that was bombarded with radiation and that was made. And now all of us eat it. So I think one of the things that the American cancer society said in their nutrition document is that there's not necessarily a tie between radiated food and, uh, and cancer. And then uh, Doug, if I say the word glyphosate or Roundup to you, what does that make you think of? Oh my gosh, um, that is a different story altogether. 
Um, I, and I, I see, man, I, I would probably say a, a patient every month or two um, that's had exposure to Roundup. And of course, exposure is, is different depending on the level. You know, it's different if someone is actually a migrant worker and is using it every day versus someone who, you know, seasonally went sprays a little bit of their, their lawn. Um, but so any, any sort of, um, you know, organophosphate or, or chemical used for pesticides in high amounts, uh, we definitely know what that can do as far as cancer risk. Uh, and, and I have seen at least anecdotally some pretty aggressive cancers that, that, uh, could have been linked. It's really hard to prove that, but, uh, some patients that have had really heavy exposures, uh, I do have a lot of concerns about that. Absolutely. Um, what about, you know, uh, we talked about some of the vitamins that are like, eh, maybe work, but you know, are there any vitamins that people probably should take or may have a little bit better evidence behind cancer progression? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, it depends for, for, for cancer. There, there's not a whole lot, um, that, that I recommend people take regularly. Like I said, I'd rather get their vitamins from, from vegetables, uh, as opposed to taking extra supplements. So, but I don't have a problem with people taking multivitamins, uh, especially if their diet is not good. Uh, vitamin D I'm a big proponent of, um, there, for a lot of reasons, there is some links with cancer and, and some, some things like lymphomas that, that have worse outcomes when they, when they have lower vitamin D levels, but more so just because everybody you test for vitamin D is low. Um, because if we probably don't get enough sunlight, uh, maybe it's our diets as well, but, but everybody sort of could use some supplementation with that. Um, but there's, there's not a lot that I would recommend on a regular basis, I would say, other than really more focusing on the diet, you know, a healthy balance, you know, especially plant-based diet, uh, is really the better source of these vitamins. Uh, a big one I also get commonly asked about as far as supplements, you know, vitamins would be things like turmeric. Um, which certainly may have some anti-inflammatory properties, may have some, some, uh, some anti-cancer properties. Uh, the ingredients in green tea, uh, you know, has been a common one that, that's been used in the sort of alternative medicine community. And I'm definitely okay with that, although I'd rather they drink green tea, green tea than, than having the actual supplements. Um, same kind of thing as before. Uh, but those I would say were the main ones, as well as the omega-3s, which I think Jackie touched on earlier. Oh, oh my. Omega-3. <laughs> I, I, need, I should patent that. I think I should patent that. So I'm going to hear it and go make a million dollars. I'm just going to be here being the guy. Oh, I made that up. Uh, wonderful. If you're listening, well, yeah. patent pending, Jackie. Petito. Yeah, patent pending. Hello, patent pending. I know that's, that works. You should get a lawyer in here. Yep. Um, well, listen, uh, it's been great, everyone. Um, it's to boil it down. If you could eat it naturally in the food. Get it from the food. Use a pill to supplement. It's called supplement, which means to supplement. It is not the complete picture of your nutrition. So eat your vitamins through vegetables, right? Some good chicken, fish, right? Take care of yourself. Uh, we're going to go take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with Doc Mock and Dr. Doug. What's going on, Maximal Beings? It's Doc Mock here. Many of you are returning to the gym now but some are not going back. Regardless of what you plan, Rogue has got the right gear to fit your needs. I personally own a barbell set and love it. The black op shorts are sweat resistant and flexible for getting deep in your squats. Head on over to maximalbeing.com rogue for our referral link. Order three items and they ship for free. And as usual, it's Doc Mock, and I'm here to maximize your pathway to wellness. If you're stuck at home and cannot make it to the grocery store, delivery may be the best way to stay clean and healthy. Instacart is the national leader in the direct-to-home delivery service. With numerous major chains and food from smaller stores, you can get those local veggies sent directly to your doorstep. Head on over to MaximalBean.com Instacart and maximize your nutrition today. And welcome back, Maximal Beans. Thank you for waiting and being patient with us. We're here with uh, Doc Mock, the largest calf muscles in the Midwest, and <laughs> Dr. Doug. And we're talking about cancer. Um, I, th I feel like we've been talking for a while, much much longer than it feels. Um, but I do have some questions for you, Dr. Doug. And you may know what they are, but I might throw some new ones in there as well because, you know, that's what I do. So <laughs> what is your favorite exercise? 
Yeah, so I've been kind of boring, I guess, during the pandemic. Um, so a lot of the exercise I, I've been doing at home are more sort of, you know, um, you know, body weight based. So I, I have my pull-up bar that I that I like to use, um, you know, that that kind of stuff, uh, stuff on the floor, sort of planking and, and that kind of thing. You know, I do have a Peloton that I gifted my wife uh, for Christmas, which I do enjoy as well. But I would say the simple stuff actually is what I what I use more. Awesome. Calisthenics, master your body weight. It's nothing wrong with that. Um, okay. Okay. Now what is the craziest diet that have you been on or tried? And also bonus, perhaps you've heard a patient try or been on. Okay. It's a good little, uh, uh, thing on top of that. So I would say, well, the craziest diet I did was unfortunately not recommended, which is, uh, in high school on the wrestling team, which is don't eat at all. Uh, <laughs> by the end of the season, you have like two mozzarella sticks and you pull up. Um, I would say I did, I did ketogenic diet for a short while, just more for the empiric experience of it. Um, I did actually get a little leaner. Uh, I did like how I felt on it. I didn't like it for more than a few months though, just because I felt it was very difficult to make good, healthy keto you know, choices, especially eating out. Um, and it wasn't a diet I wanted to be on long-term. Um, Patient diet, that's a tough one in terms of anything extreme. Not really, because one of the sort of maybe nice things about oncology is that uh, my patients actually listen to us and and uh, and they don't usually do something too extreme without letting us know. Um, so I can't say I've heard anything that, that outlandish as far as any kind of, you know, weird uh, juice fast or anything like that. Uh, most people just are pretty uh, forthcoming about what they're doing. Okay. All right. I guess, I guess that'll work. Um, <laughs> actually I've, I have seen on, uh, on the interwebs, people who take these more, you know, I don't want to use the word holistic cause that word is kind of becomes an umbrella term, mm -hmm. but like, I guess a non-medically non, you know, prescription medicine approach to try to deal with, very strong forms of cancer mm -hmm. um yeah okay. i mean is there any merit to it you know i know there's a lot of people they say hey yeah you know it's about you know being happy because obviously right your mind and and where you're where you are mentally can also help promote like a, a better environment but um is, is there any water to that i mean you know is there any science there well, I mean, state of mind is very important because we do know stress is, is a, has a big impact on, on cancer and, and having high cortisol levels is never good. Um, so I do work with a lot of patients who want to do things that are sort of outside the box. And, and I encourage that, especially if patients are, are you know, having cancer that maybe we don't have a lot of good standard approaches for. Um, I'm definitely more willing to do to experiments with things like that. Um, for example, you mentioned keto diets. I mean, there's there is some good data that ketogenic diet may be helpful for brain tumors, uh, for gliomas like GBM, um, but not a lot of good data in, in most other cancers. Um, as far as other extremes, I mean, it's not usually about the whole diet that my patients are doing. They're usually doing more supplementation uh, with things that are more herbal treatments that are sort of outside the box. We also have a lot of patients that may have incurable diseases. So we're trying to use more of a metabolic approach in general we're trying to repurpose drugs that um, are used for other conditions that may be helpful for cancer. For example, cancer biology in the cell is a little different than, than a healthy cell. Uh, for example, that most cells are interested in making ATP for energy, whereas cancer cells, they're more re really interested in building substrate, which is the building blocks for more cells because a cancer cell needs to divide and spread. And, and so they're always looking for for new lipids uh, to build their membranes. They're looking for, for glutamate to make their proteins that, you know, they're, they're looking for, uh, of course, glucose, uh, all these things. So there is some, some use perhaps uh, experimentally using cholesterol medications, things like metformin, other drugs like that, that are common drugs for other conditions that may also help these sort of patients with intractable disease. So that's probably the thing that I'm more likely to explore in patients than sort of extreme diets, but, um, you know, to each his own, when it comes to a chronic illness that, that may be incurable, we, we do everything we can. Sure. Sure. Okay. That's, that's, that's fair. Um, last, not last question, actually, I, I think <laughs> I might have another one. Uh, so current, so what is your favorite health book and why? 
Yeah. So one of the things that really got me into intermittent fasting uh, is the uh, the diabetes code by Dr. Jason Fung. And the thing that really blew my mind about why fasting is so powerful is that this is a nephrologist from Canada who basically had a lot of patients with really terrible diabetes and, and, and stage renal disease. But a lot of them, of course, with di- diabetics, they, they often can have like non-healing ulcers in their, in their extremities. And some of these patients needed amputations. Uh, so he said, look, you know, you, you're scheduled for surgery you know, in a week or so. Let's do something extreme. And he fasted them for seven days. It was a medically supervised fast, water only. And he learned that not only was it easy or not easy, it was doable. The patient said that they, they could do it. Um, but it also worked. They, their wounds would heal. They would be able to come off their insulin and, and, hence, and hence reverse their diabetes. Um, and so it was really mind blowing. But the, the key thing of that, of, of which really I take home to my patients, is that when you ask the patients how it was, it didn't get harder with each day. I always sort of assume that the longer you go, the hunger you get. Um, but it's really not. They, they stayed a little bit hungry this, the whole time. It wasn't like on day six, they were twice as hungry as day three. They just stayed a little bit hungry. And so it was doable for these patients. Now, I don't say that most of my patients have to do something extreme like that, but it just says it is possible. And it really changed the way I think about diabetes and, and how fasting can be powerful. So that would be the one. That was interesting. Yeah. And I've, I found that myself where I, uh, I've, I found myself, it's like four o'clock and I haven't eaten yet. I'm like, uh, I should pass out by now, but right. um, interesting what the body can do. Okay. I've, I've, a two-part question is a simple yes or no, or it can explain. One, okay. is 5G going to give us all cancer? <laughs> no. Okay. Is staying in front of the microwave going to give us all cancer? No. Or else it would have already. <laughs> is my cell phone in my pocket going to give me cancer? No, it's actually – so when I was in, uh, in fellowship, uh, me and my co-fellow uh, actually tried to look at a, at a, at a trial. We, he wrote actually this paper. It was, it was mostly his idea. Uh, we looked at the SEER database, which is this giant database that you can access publicly. And we tried to see if there was a link between testicular cancer and cell phones. Mm. And we tried to sort of devise a trial based on like, well, most people may be right-handed. Maybe they'd be having it in this pocket more than others. But since the, the advent of cell phones, we couldn't really you know, identify any, any clear link. Um, so there was at least one trial looking at that. But no, I don't see there's any, any, any risk with that. And actually, the new cell phones have such a smaller uh, electromagnetic field compared to the old phones. Uh, Their technology has actually improved, so it should be less of a risk. Oh, that's good. That makes me feel much better. (laughs) Um, Okay. I mean, so that's the last last question that I have. Um, But but I would say, you know, you know, we've 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 laughed and we we've made our jokes, but you know, cancer is a a real is a real deal, right? You know, it is a c word, right? Something that some people don't say. So, you know, what would you say to someone? who maybe within the last week or month, you know, just, you know, just words of encouragement or support that might be dealing with, you know, waiting for results or they might've found something that, you know, they have to go like, you know, what would you say to them? Yeah. Another great question, man. You're good at this, Jackie. Um, That's, that's a tough one. And I would say the biggest one would probably be talk to your doctor about how you're feeling and about what your thoughts are. You know, a lot, a lot of our patients, have that thought in the back of their mind is like, well, how much time do I have? They need to address that, that voice in their head, because without addressing it, they, the anxiety doesn't go down. And they've actually looked at studies about these sort of like, you know, end of life conversations or these serious illness conversations. And even though it's hard for us as providers to talk about these, these things, it actually does, actually lowers anxiety levels for patients when you do address them, especially early on. Um, so even though it's uncomfortable to do it, it actually improves their outcomes and, and it also makes better decisions when, it, when things are not going well at the end of life and they can spend more time at home with their families as opposed to being in the hospital, which is what no one wants. Yeah, I think that um, a lot of people undervalue the benefit of proper nutrition when you do receive a cancer diagnosis. And a lot of us doctors, you know, we're so focused on the cancer itself that we forget the rest of the person. And so, you know, making sure that you are eating real food, eating right, getting enough food. Those are so, so important um, in terms of the way that you're going to respond to to Doug Beach's care, you know, the chemotherapy won't get to where it needs to get to without you being properly nourished. Um, and if you're somebody out there that is taking care of somebody with cancer or has taken care of somebody with cancer, just know that it's okay for you to feel the same things that that person is feeling too, to feel overwhelmed, 
to feel remorse, to feel sad and, and um, take care of yourself too, because if you don't take care of yourself, you can't support that person that is suffering that's there with you. So, you know, not to bring us down a little bit low at the end here, but just getting real. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate uh, our community of very supportive people at Maximal Being, and I appreciate both of you supporting us in this wonderful discussion about cancer. Any other parting thoughts, Dr. Doug? No, I think you guys all summed it up well. So, uh, so eat right, stay active, avoid too much sugar, and uh, be well. Gotcha. All right. So it, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank, thanks to both of you for uh, for being here on this cancer uh, discussion. And and again, just keep things simple. You know, look at the literature. I would encourage all of you if you want to read more. The American Cancer Society came out on an exhaustive review on all of the medical literature of all the things that you should and should not do. So you know, go on their website. You can download it for free and read it today. And if you have any questions, reach out to us at team at maximalbeing.com. We have a lot of exciting things coming out. We're going to be launching a new course soon, some of which we're going to be talking about the role in the cell called the perfect human diet. So watch out for that. And as always, I'm Doc Mock, and I'm here with Jackie P and Dr. Douglas Beach, and we're here to maximize your health. What's going on, Maximal Beings? Doc Mock here. If you haven't done so already, leave us a comment and hit the subscribe button. Let your friends and family know. That way we can get the word out and continue to bash the bro science.